Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. This morning I'd like to deal with an issue that for the probably the first time on the program is actually being dealt with at length across the station and much of the country, if not the world, and that is the attack by Hamas on Israel over the weekend. But perhaps I'd like to just look at it from a range of perspectives that don't necessarily delve into the horror of it and the horror of it it was, but really just look at, at some of the political and geopolitical implications, particularly the geopolitical implications. And to that to that end, I have invited my colleague, Nicholas Lorimer, who is the uh, geopolitical researcher and host of the Daily Friend Show, that is for the IRR, he's the researcher, who is both interested and knowledgeable about geopolitical events and is a bit of a history buff as well. Nicholas, uh, welcome to the IRR show. Very good to be here. Thank you for having me on. And Nick, I wanted to ask you first and foremost, um, Israel's detractors, and I think that's probably a fairly uh, mild way of saying it, um, are they expressing a fair amount of support, shall we say, for Hamas's actions, demand that the occupation be lifted. Is this about the lifting of the occupation? So I think it depends on the detractor. Um, for many of the more hardcore detractors, it's not really about lifting the occupation because for them, occupation is occupation blockade of, of Gaza is not really the issue because they believe, uh, many of them believe in a, in a one state solution, which is that there should be Palestine and no Israel effectively. I think there are others who genuinely con- are concerned about the, the, con- you know, the, the controls placed on, on Gaza and the West Bank and Palestinians living in those areas. But the problem is the discussion never seems to kind of go into why Israel placed those controls on those areas. It's usually because often, particularly a group like Hamas has exploited sort of civilian humanitarian aid and that kind of stuff to equip themselves whenever they can. Um, and it makes it really difficult for Israel because on one hand, they feel like they need to tightly control the border to a place like uh, Gaza, to parts of the West Bank in order to make sure that um, there's no weapons or, or fighters uh, crossing the border. But at the same time, Every time you, you put up a, a new control on the border, a new search or something, it makes life difficult for people, makes life di- difficult for goods to move across. I think that discussion often is more sort of a talking point rather than actually going anywhere and revealing that for, for Israel to maintain its security is actually a far more difficult equation than just simply lifting the blockade. After all, you know, the Israelis withdrew from uh, the Gaza Strip unilaterally in 2000. I think it was. And uh, since then, it's not really brought the peace that was hoped at the time. I think there's a general failure to appreciate in geographical terms uh, often that in in an area the size of the Middle East, uh, Israel is literally the size of the Kruger Park. Um, So that accords with your comments about the difficulty of protecting borders, your, your borders are very small. You have you have a, the borders per se are not necessarily small, but the space within which you can protect them is very very small. Right, so Israel's got this very difficult problem of having awful geography. Uh, mm-hmm. It's got these sort of highlands in Lebanon to the north and in Syria, uh, which look down on it. And uh, at the beginning of its history, Israel did not control those areas, and so it made it vulnerable to being shelled from them. Um, and it's got a bit of desert to the south and not really that many uh, 
fortifications there, and then it's got the the river on the on the on the eastern side. So its only safe border really is the west um, to a reasonable degree, which is of course mm. the sea, and that makes it really difficult to enact any kind of. Uh, th- there's this concept in 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 strategy called strategic depth, which is when you have sort of space that you can trade away um, to yeah. buy time in the event that you're invaded. The only place that Israel has anything approaching that is in the far south of the country, um, in, in the mm-hmm. desert there. But this means that this is one of the reasons why Israel has to be so alert on its borders because it can't, there's no, there's no fallback position. You know, you can't mm. give up some countryside in order to prepare your defenses because mm. the moment someone is over the border, they're into the heartland of your populated areas. And that's that's what mm. makes Israel so vulnerable from a from a geopolitical geography uh, perspective. This goes somewhere to explaining a lot of the criticism leveled at the government, the Netanyahu government itself, is the fact that in sort of creating a new far-right coalition and getting into this extraordinary conflict in, within society, um, and I'm not looking at, I'm not sort of per se looking at the, at the merits of the, of a conflict, but in the conflict over amendments to, or reforms to the Supreme Court of Israel, the, the government has completely, or taken its eye off what is an extreme, for the reasons you've just given, an extremely vulnerable ball. And for the first, probably for the first time in decades, if not ever, it, it's, it took hours for, reservists for army to relieve residents living in the attacked area. Um, I mean, one, one account is it took about 10 hours for a family to sort of to be rescued by the, the guy's father who had been, a, who was a retired army person. Now, 10 hours in 10 hours, you can, you know, in 10 hours here, you can get to Port Elizabeth and beyond, Israel just isn't that big. So the, the, the taking, the taking the eye off the ball is a critical, critical failure. I, I think that's exactly right. There's, there's going to be huge political repercussions with this within Israel. The Israeli security forces and especially their intelligence agencies are supposed to be the best in the world. Even their enemies mm. will often concede that. Um, and yet this time it seems that they were caught completely napping. And the early reporting seems to suggest that Hamas have been planning this for a very long time. And they uh, went to great lengths to create this deception, this feeling that they were not uh, in danger of, of launching an attack. Now, in fact, they had been recently reaching out a little bit to the Israeli government saying, uh, can we get more work permits for Gazans so that they can come and work in Israel, that kind of thing. And so the Israeli government thought for a second that they had kind of contained the threat. And I think one of the other things that the Hamas operatives demonstrated was a very well thought out and well planned operation. This the, the breaching of the border, the distraction by using rockets, the whole thing had been trained for for a long time and was skillfully executed. And they demonstrated that you don't actually need, you know, all of the highest tech things and huge amounts of heavy equipment in order to be able to uh, strike at your enemy, particularly when you have the element of surprise like this. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think I'd be very surprised if, if lots of heads didn't roll within the mm-hmm. Israeli military establishment for what is – I think a bit of an unmitigated disaster, um, mm. even if now they've they've managed to resecure control. Well, you see, th- this is the interesting thing because in its execution, um, it was a massive terror attack. It wasn't a conventional armed incursion. Uh, it didn't involve hugely, hugely sophisticated weaponry, and it wasn't specifically aimed at, at uh, engaging the forces on the other side. 
it it did this thing which even which even which not even I says the ANC itself didn't have enough in compassion to to comment on. The main objective was civilians, whether it was murder, rape, or hostage taking, which presents a whole lot of different problems to the Israelis. This is not a conventional war, but is it a war? I think it is. So when there were there were attacks on Israeli military bases, in fact, I believe Hamas actually captured one briefly um, in the south of the country, uh, which I think would have also been another huge shock to the IDF, believing that it could, uh, you know, that something like this would never happen. Israel genuinely lost control of those border regions for a few hours. And the counterattack now that I'm sure is very likely to go into Gaza now is going to probably involve some very vicious urban street fighting. So I think this really is a war uh, in, in every sense of the word. And both sides are, are already fighting it like one. And it's going to be very, very nasty for, for everyone involved. Uh, perhaps raises a question we can't ask at this stage, but uh, maybe the subject for debate at a further stage is the fact that if this is a war and the UN has granted essentially recognition to uh, West Bank and Gaza as as a country, as Palestine, and most of its supporters would consider it de facto a country, um, where this would ultimately leave perhaps the, the perpetrators on Hamas side from the point of view of, of things like the rules of, of the rules of war, such as the Geneva Convention. Could, this, could the style of this attack have partly been to avoid that 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 accusation at, at at a later stage i think those international institutions that you talk of are extremely weak right now uh there's the enforcement mechanisms don't exist really and mm. you know we've seen now for example that the peacekeeping force that the un has in southern lebanon to prevent conflict between hezbollah and israel um have sort of just gone back to base because tensions are heating up. So one has mm. to ask the question, what is the point? And, mm. you know, the, the International Criminal Court can can put out uh, arrest warrants for people, you know, like it did for, for Vladimir Putin. But at the end of the day, it's up to the countries themselves to enforce these orders. There is no kind of international force. And I think both uh, Israel and, Palis- and the Palestinian, or at least the, the Hamas, don't really care too much um, about that. There will be some attempts to sort of ensure that, there can be at least some sort of legal case made that whatever each side is doing is, is correct by international law. But I think at the moment, international law is extremely weak, is routinely violated by a whole host of countries, um, and it's going to play very little factor in this kind of thing. Talking about the, the, the international response, certainly from the West, was immediate and, and, and shocked. And I think I would imagine a lot of the Western countries would have recognized or responded to this in a way that, that Echoes some of their experience, whether it be 9-11, um, the attacks in France in 2015, um, 7-7 in, in, in the UK. Um, it, it, it was it be, being aimed at, uh, at, uh, at civilians predominantly. All of a sudden now, perhaps one should be thankful that the, um, that the Americans are, are basically sending in an aircraft carrier fleet to the eastern Mediterranean. That's well and good, but its approach to, for want of a better word, appeasing Iran in the last, in, in this, in, in the Biden administration suggests that I'm not sure Iran would be particularly perturbed by the USA sending in the aircraft fleet, aircraft carrier fleet, sorry. I think that's the very big unanswered question of this is to what degree was Iran involved in these attacks? And that is a question that will determine, I think, a lot of Israel's response. 
so far it's a little bit unclear. So we know that Hamas is supported militarily in many ways by Iran. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everything that Hamas does is directly at, at Iran's mm. directional request. In this case, I think the facts are still emerging and, and there was a story in the, Wash, in the Wall Street Journal rather this morning or, or yesterday rather that suggested that there was direct involvement by Iran. However, I haven't seen a lot of um, official organizations on the Israeli side confirming that or agreeing with that. So how involved in this Iran is going to end up being is, is I think still to be determined. Um, there's currently, I think, clashes going on uh, the nor- on Israel's northern border, uh, with, uh, with, well, it's not really clear who, whether it is actually Hezbollah or someone else, but so far, at least when we're recording this, Hezbollah has not joined the fighting in a big way. And that, to me, suggests that Iran may have not been directly involved in this. As for uh, being deterred by the U.S., I think the Iranians don't think that, you know, no matter how close that aircraft carrier is, they're really going to, the Americans are necessarily going to do anything. Iran has really stepped up its aggressive actions in the region recently. Uh, it's been attacking and, and sort of essentially hijacking um, container ships and, and oil tankers and things in the in the uh, Straits of Hormuz, Persian Gulf. Um, so much so that the U.S. is considering actually putting Marines on ships mm. that go through those areas in order to protect them. Uh, and I think the you know the Iranians are thinking to themselves, well, look, Biden doesn't want to start a war just before the election. Mm. American uh, foreign policy is, in in my opinion, uh, generally speaking, extremely incoherent and is very strongly shaped by its domestic politics. Um, mm. And whoever uh, it's it's determined by whether the the administration thinks it can get a win out of um, some kind of foreign policy action. And so, I think the Iranians will probably correctly think to themselves, "Well, we can probably push the envelope quite far um, mm. and and not be struck by the U.S." Now. They can miscalculate, of course. There will be mm. a point where if they act too aggressively, uh, the U.S. may become involved. And, and so far, the U.S. is signaling that they will only become involved if there's a sort of third party that joins this fight, like Hezbollah, perhaps, in which case they might start striking targets in, in Lebanon or maybe even in Iran itself or possibly Iraq, because, of course, Iran has this vast network of mm. proxy and allied groups who operate in Yemen Iraq and Syria, um, by which it, it sort of has deniable um, power that it can exercise to strike its enemies. Uh, so I think the region is very is right now sitting on on a real powder keg with the opportunity for this to expand massively. Although so far I think that at least for now it's going to main, be contained to the Gaza Strip and Israel. But who knows? Uh, mm. the, the potential here for it to spiral into a much bigger conflict are. are is is not to be taken lightly. It seems like like Biden's administration is really following the course of uh, Barack Obama's foreign policy towards Iran, and that is essentially, I don't know, say bolstering Iran, but trying desperately to create a sort of balance of power in the Middle East, which in, in the Middle East, the balance of anything is 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 uh, is un, is unlikely, and. You know, you had the situation with the, the the revolution occurred in '79. The Americans were extremely embarrassed by the events that occurred during that during that takeover. Forty years later, we have an autocratic, uh, theocratic government, unchanged in forty years. It has no hesitation in 
in suppressing its people, um, it carries out the death sentence with remarkable ease, with a minute, with by all accounts a minimum of uh, of evidence. It suggests that the Americans either just must have a very unusual view of the of the Middle East, or it just really doesn't understand the difference, the the paradigm difference between the way the West uh, operates and sees things to the way. The Middle East operates and sees things. And this strikes me as, as an extraordinary blunder. I mean, just to add on to this, just recently, the Iranians admitted that they carried out the bombing that killed over 260 American Marines in Beirut, what was it, three decades ago. You know, the Iranians, I wouldn't have thought the Americans could consider the Iranians to be allies of any kind. I, so I would characterize um, particularly the Obama and Biden administration's approach to Iran is trying to sort of kick the can down the road and just hoping that at some point you, you can pay off the Iranian government to be more peaceful and at some point it'll collapse due to its own sort of internal contradictions and hypocrisy and bad management. And so far that hasn't happened. Almost every single American administration since 1979 has, has at some point attempted to warm relations with Iran only for it to blow up in their face. Um, this has been a consistent pattern uh, in American foreign policy because I think for some of the reasons you suggested is that there's just sort of a failure to take them seriously and actually believe them when they say what their ideological aims and goals are. Um, mm-hmm. The Iranian regime is very – it's this very weird combination of kind of um, sort of French revolutionary chic and fervor mixed with a sort of hardline, uh, you know, a reactionary Shiite uh, theological thing. So it really does view itself as a, as a progressive revolutionary movement that's going to bring about a Islamic revival and restore both Persia and the Muslim world to, um, uh, 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 some level of greatness. Um, and that it should spread through the entire Islamic world. And that is actually one of the reasons why that, that that's actually shaped a lot of uh, activities in the, in the, uh, in the Islamic world ever since, um, mm. is the example of the Iranian revolution, even among groups that are not Shiites. Mm. Uh, and it, it's, it's routinely misunderstood. Um, there's a sort of belief that, uh, the Iranian regime is really just looking for some kind of short-term material benefit. And yes, that does drive some of their thoughts and calculations. But at the end of the day, they have much greater ambitions than simply remaining in power. Uh, this is what fascinates me. I mean, you've, you've got, you've, in, in all these sort of, in an administration like the American government, I mean, you've got to have experts who've studied this and lived with it for years. Comment from a nut wolf who's a, a, a doctor of politics in, in Israel, who's comment on the situation. She's long held not a particular positive view of any solution being found in, in, to this conflict because she says, you know, the extreme Arab, political Arab left, oh, not, oh, sorry, not left, the extreme Arab, uh, poly, politicos, where jihad is the political philosophy, they, they know how to operate patiently. So if it takes 50 years, 100 years, it doesn't matter, it will be pursued. That doesn't seem to be something that, as Westerners, we, we can grasp. I think we can, um, we just don't characterize it correctly, um, because, you know, all revolutionary movements to some degree, have this view of themselves as inevitable, right? The, the Soviet mm-hmm. Union thought that it was in, an inevitable, um, reality that, that the sort of Marxist, Marxist Leninism would 
conquer the world and liberate the proletariat and smash capitalism and all that. And that it might take 10 years or a hundred years or a thousand years, but eventually it would happen. Like I said, there's just this sort of inability of many foreign governments. I think because, um, many of Iran's opponents really just don't want to deal with it because it's too expensive and too difficult uh, to mm. actually take the Iranian threat seriously, which is why you constantly see this sort of kicking the can down the road thing. It's, you know, if we can delay Iran being a problem by 10 years, then we'll be out of office. And who cares then? Because it's not our problem. And every time that happens is the situation just kind of gets worse and worse and worse. And, mm. you know, we now are sitting with a massive powder keg in the Middle East that Iran is relatively close to being able to de- develop nuclear weapons. It has this huge sort of network of proxies in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq, and Lebanon, of course. And it's it's now connected to a group that has just carried out this horrific massacre of Israelis. Mm. Uh, the potential for you know sort of an all-out conflict that tears apart the whole region, I think, is quite high. Where in all of this, um, we were chatting earlier the, uh, on this issue, where, where in all of this is Russia? Because Russia's been buying arms from Iran, and uh, the, yes. the, the relationship seems to have been coalescing fairly successfully. The Russian, and, the, and the Russia put out this really weird sort of, you know, we must sort of calm things down, and and there must be a de-escalation. I mean, Russia never talks about things like de-escalations. No, exactly. Uh, the, the the problem here, I think, is that Russia has it's often tried to remain sort of on good terms with both sides, the Palestine-Israeli conflict. It has these traditional links to the Palestinian movement from when the Soviets supported them. But then it also has had there's the, quite a large, I think, um, Russian diaspora in, in, in Israel. And Putin personally has been much more friendly to Israel. So this, I think, suggests a little bit of a, a deviation from where they were going because I, I suspect that in years past the Russians might have condemned more openly the attacks. Mm. Uh, but Russia is increasingly seeing its ally as being Iran. Um, and that means that it is shifting, I think, its allegiances back more into that sort of Cold War alignment of being uh, pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel. Although I, I still think that it's 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 more or less trying to keep um, its powder dry on this one and not get too involved in it. Uh, but it's clear that uh, it, it values its relationship, I think, with Iran more than it values its relationship with Israel at the moment. Well, I suppose at least from the Russian point of view, um, eyes are taken off Ukraine at the moment. If anything will take eyes off Ukraine, it would be this. Well, that's been quite interesting is that uh, Ukraine, which has a history of either not really caring about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or sort of leaning towards the Palestinians, um, has actually come out extremely strongly in favor of, of Israel's right to self-defense. And uh, Zelensky has made several speeches now about how uh, what he calls is a sort of, he's trying to frame this as a global war of terror against freedom. Um, mm. And he, he's kind of drawn lines and said, you know, Israel and Ukraine have the same enemy in Iran. Uh, we are united both in a, in a battle against terror against civilians. Uh, that's been the tone of his speeches recently. So the geopolitical winds are creating sort of, it very much seems as it's pushing the world increasingly to at least two big power blocks. What's fascinating is that the discussion on the ramifications of this of this conflict um, is sort of reminiscent of the old days. It's wide ranging and it could go on sadly for probably as longer than the conflict itself, which seems to be somewhat infinite. Nick, thank you very much for joining me and providing some interesting insights and perhaps a different view on a, on a whole lot of issues that we need to take into account. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you.